Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, everybody, this is Julia from Literary Disco. Um, I am so sorry to tell you that we've been time traveling and this is episode 123. Yes, we already released 124 and 125, but 123 was so good that we went back and fixed some tech issues and re-released it for you. So enjoy your time traveling and enjoy Cat Person. Welcome to episode 123 of Literary Disco, Cat Person. Today we discuss the infamous Cat Person short story by Kristen Rapunian. We'll talk about this story along with two older short stories that make for good companion reads, Stitches by Antonia Nelson and A Real Doll by A.M. Holmes. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me as always are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hi guys. Hey, Ryder Strong. Hey, Julie Pastel. What's going on? You guys ready for an exciting, fun talk about <sighs> rape? <laughs> Always. Always Barbie ready. Barbie doll rape is my favorite uh, That's I can't wait to, to dive <laughs> right into it. We end up talking about it a lot, actually, in the uh, in the books. I was I, I don't know if you guys looked at all the comments about um, our our downslide into Xanth with uh, Ryder's former friend, Will Fidel. <laughs> But a lot of people did not remember the rape no. trials that take place in Zan. <laughs> it they is so it bizarre. Out. I mean, I, I think you forget it because it's just so bizarre when you're 12 years old. You don't really quite, I mean, hopefully now 12-year-olds are a little more aware. But certainly in like the 80s and 90s, it was just like, what? Uh, I don't know what's going on. I'll just keep reading. Ugh. Yeah, I, I got a fair amount of uh, of messages from friends of mine saying, dude, Xanth was great. I, I don't know what you guys are talking about complaining, but I'm going to listen to it. And then an email like 47 minutes later going, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Todd, you went to uh, AWP? Oh, I did, yeah. I, I went How to AWP it? in Tampa. Um, so AWP is the annual gathering of all the creative writing programs and super sad poets all in one place for <laughs> uh, four days. Here's the most notable thing that happened. It's a little embarrassing. Um, I tripped. Oh, God. And I fell. And I kind of broke my arm a little bit. Are you serious? <laughs> it, uh, it's all jammed up. And I, I'm, I normally have to wear a sling. And I have to ice it several hours a day. I apparently jammed all the bones from my hand up into my shoulder. By Were you on stage when this happened? Yeah. No, that's the only way this could be Julia's story. Yeah. No, I was just I was just walking down the street, and oh, uh, my colleague Agam was looking at restaurants on Yelp that we had visited previously in a different city, so we could remember eating good food, and oh, um, <laughs> and I just fell. And the reason I bring this up as an embarrassing thing is that like. Homeless people were stepping over me. I was laying on the ground, kind of moaning, and a gom was petting me because I couldn't breathe because it knocked all the air out of me. And I, I skinned both of my knees. Yeah, and I just, it came to the point as I was sitting there that I began to reevaluate my choices in life. Okay. And um, I think I'm going to get into better shape. <laughs> I'm gonna start. Uh, I'm gonna start wearing shoes with some support in them. Um, a couple of those things I'm gonna do. But anything about the book conference? I met. Literature. It really covers. Yeah, <laughs> I met subject. a ton of uh, literary disco fans, as always, which mm-hmm. is always super cool. Um, and I met a bunch of oh, people. Oh, good. Did they ask about me? This was, I'm afraid to say, Julia, this was the year of the young woman who wanted 
to text writer. Yeah! We yeah. were able to reaffirm Ryder Strong's sexual viability in the 21st century with a certain age. Still woman. got it. Still got it. <laughs> that damn girl meets world. They're, no, they like my brain. Come on. They were. It's because of literary disco. No, they. Uh... Please. They like my thoughts. Come on. There was a lot. Don't sorry. objectify me, Julia. They, sorry, these sorry, sorry. Were objectifying writer. Um, there was young, one young woman um, who came to my uh, table at. So UCR has a booth, and I sit there, and I'm good, as Julia knows, because she's gone to this. I'm good for like the first four hours of AWP, and then I begin to slowly lose my mind. Um, but this nice young woman came up. She was a creative writing student somewhere in the Midwest. And she did the thing that often our fans do, which is come up to me and say, is Ryder here? As though we are constantly <laughs> traveling in a pack with one another. And I said, no, a but there's a lot of people who look like Ryder here. And then she started sort of Are you of referring to around. sad poets? Yeah, no, just like, <laughs> lot, like a lot of facial hair and then like, you know, good jeans and... And, and a nice quaff. Um, and so then she was <laughs> An like... An air of pretension. Is there any way that like we could FaceTime with them? And I was like, that's... yeah, No, there's not really any way we could do that. <laughs> so there was wow, a that. Wow, ballsy. Um, there was... Uh, I didn't see... So normally there's a trend. Like I, 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 I can spot a fashion trend at AWP. Last year, when it was in Washington, D.C., Everybody had that Richard Spencer fascist haircut. That, fortunately, has gone the way of the fascist, um, which is that they've left it to the fascists. Um, a few years I don't think I that, know what this haircut is. You know, the, the, like Hitler, you know, where there's, it's short on the sides and longer on the top. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The year before that, it was bow ties. The year before that, everyone was kind of steampunk. Um, but there was no overwhelming fashion trend. What I can say, though, is that there was a lot of people who um, were talking about uh, Me Too, uh, which makes what we're going to read today, I think, important, obviously. Um, there was a lot of discussion about um, uh, the state of American government that was going on. Um, There's a lot of conversations going on about um, the inclusion of women in literature. There was uh, a tremendous amount of discussion about um, Sherman Alexie, um, who right beforehand was in the oh, news friend. for his sexual relationships outside of his marriage and whatnot. Um, so people were, were sort of buzzing about, you know, the things that everyone in the culture is buzzing about. Um, right. But, you know, the one thing that's super cool about going to AWP, and I, I say this, I think, every year, is that I, I do come back a little depressed because I think... Well, there's sort of a Ponzi scheme aspect to it. There's a lot of these colleges that pop up that are selling graduate degrees in creative writing, and the you know the schools sound like bed and breakfasts or IPAs, and then two years from now they're gone. Um, and I worry sometimes that we're creating a legion of writers, but not a legion of readers. Um, but this year, mm -hmm. I was again heartened by the real activist bent of writers and yeah. their their that desire to. Speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, uh, to be that buffer that we often talk about that artists can provide um, to underserved people. Um, and then I just saw a lot of people hooking up indiscriminately at bad parties. And I'm a, I'm a believer in um, getting drunk at a poetry reading and just making a poor personal it. choice, you know? I believe that. It's not a bad segue to uh, <laughs> not at all <laughs> depressingly or any of your stories. All right, um, so let's uh, let's go let's go right to it. Cat Person is a short story um, by Kristen Rupenian that it appeared in the December 2017 issue of the New Yorker. It um, became a viral success, getting lots of admiration as well as a significant backlash, and then a counter backlash and counter to the counter backlash <laughs> it, it's sort of the story the short story of the me too moment and right. um now that some time has passed i mean three three months or four months which in the, the age of twitter is is, is an, an ice eon. age yeah so <clears throat> we thought we'd we'd stick our hands right into the hornet's nest so in order to do that todd you suggested that we pick up some other great short stories by women about similar issues of uh, female perspective versus male perspective, sex, female identity. 
And those stories are uh, Stitches by Antonia Nelson, which also appeared in The New Yorker, but 19 years ago. And uh, it's the story of a woman named Ellen, who is awoken in the middle of the night when her daughter calls from college to say she has been raped. And then A.M. A. M. Holmes uh, first published uh, the short story, A Real Doll, in her collection, The Safety of Objects, in 1990. And it's the story of a boy and his relationship with his sister's Barbie doll. <laughs> relationship in the biggest air quotes you've ever seen. Like, yes. imagine the moon as one side of an air quote. And then imagine yes. the moon again as the other yeah. side of an air quote. <laughs> so how do you guys want to do this? Should we talk about Cat Person first? Or do we just want to talk about... Well, first of all, everybody should go read these stories if they can find them. Because they're all they're pretty short and... Uh, we're not going to save anything. We're going to spoilers left and right. Yeah, so, and, and I'll um, put up links to all of these stories uh, up on our Facebook and our, our Twitter page. Let me let me just say briefly why I um, selected Stitches and a Real Doll to go along with this story. Um, so I read Cat Person probably a month after it came out. I, um, like everyone else, I was sick all of December. And uh, so I sort of missed the reading of it, but it was there for the brouhaha and was like, oh, this is strange. And so I finally read the story and I thought, well, this is a this is a very good story, but this is not the first time the story has been written, nor is it the first right. time it's been written in an extraordinarily provocative way. And the first story that I thought of as a comp was Stitches by Antonia Nelson, um, which has been anthologized in, you know, every sort of like big anthology of great American short fiction of the second half of the 20th century for years, like, you know, for 25 yeah. years it has been. Um, and the same thing with A Real Doll by uh, A.M. Holmes, which is that it's often used in these anthologies of American short fiction, but also in anthologies of kind of subversive uh, sexual fiction that, that pop up in a lot of uh, undergraduate classes and that sort of thing. But both of them, when they came out, um, were, you know, the objects of some discussion, but they were not the objects of national discussion because there was no platform at that time for people right. to go crazy and talk about a short story like there is now with Twitter and Facebook and, and all that stuff. Um, and so I thought immediately of both of these stories as something that if a person loved Cat Person, that they should read, but also to put this story in context with the kinds of stories that have been written like this over the course of the past 30 years so that we understand right. that while Cat Person is a, an interesting and good story and of this moment, it is not, in fact, uh, one of a kind. It is, or it is one of a kind. Yeah, it's of a kind, and it is of this kind. Yeah, like, the context is the modern American female experience, you know? The overlap between these stories is almost shocking. Like, there's parts of Cat Person where she says she feels like a doll and all these other things. Like, these stories feel like classics, not just because they're written well, but because they're universal. It feels mm -hmm. like they're, like, timeless. Like, any story about young women dating would have these same sinister mm -hmm. elements, you know? Like, you know, right. gaslighting, <laughs> right. men exerting their power right. over women, you know, the regular old stuff. Uh, <laughs> the humdrum life of every single woman you know. And the fact that, like, absolutely nothing has changed between Stitches and Cat Person is the whole point. That's the feminist right. context in which we're currently living. I'm super excited. Over 40 years, yeah, right. basically. Also. Yeah. I'm super excited about this yeah, episode. That's what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And these selections are excellent and super creepy. They're almost repetitive. You know, like they've got big, big overlaps and women facing the same things. And right. the ways in which women have to navigate the dating landscape and reach rape culture at the same exact time is such an important subject and it echoes all through these stories and I'm really excited to talk about and you know you guys are it's mm -hmm. it's really nice that you guys are willing to go there because this is in the zeitgeist right now <laughs> yeah. as a minor phenomenon I think cat person though is very um like you know it, the, I didn't know anything about this I completely what? missed this whole thing because I, I was also <laughs> sick all of January so I um <laughs> When I, 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 you guys suggest, or I, Julia, did you suggest we do Cat Person? One of you suggested that we read Cat Person, and I... I think I did. Okay, yeah, and I had no idea what you were talking yeah. about. So I had somehow managed to miss a lot of this. So I, I started poking around, and it seems like a lot of it is um, 
you know, it feels it feels new because it's a you know it's it's a, a dating millennial mm. story, mm-hmm. right? Um, and 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 it's told primarily from the female millennials' perspective, and so I think it also, as opposed to a lot of New Yorker fiction, which doesn't focus on millennial characters or young people in general, and especially not young women as much. I think it, that it became, I mean, I think it's one of the most popular yeah. New Yorker stories of all time. Um, it's, it's been, it's been, uh, it touched a nerve. Well, yeah. It touched yeah. a big nerve, you know, yeah, because and it, I think... it had men and women discussing sort of sexual politics, um, and dating politics and, and what it means, like the essence of stalking and, all these things. I, I had my I had one of my um, MFA classes read it too. Um, notably, the class was uh, all older people. Um, I think they were probably all oh, forty or above. Yeah. Wow. And I'll, I'll get into the responses, but I was surprised by some of the responses. <laughs> oh. <Uh-oh. laughs> okay. I want to hear what they say. I'm nervous about it. Okay, so anyway, let's let's back up and summarize the story itself. Okay, so Cat Person is about a young woman named Margot who meets this guy at a movie theater where she works, and they start flirting and texting and all that good stuff. Um, and he takes her out, and the whole story feels both normal and sinister at the same time. He's really condescending, but like in a flirty way, he's much older than she is. It's all very creepy. Um, and eventually they hook up and have a super awkward sexual encounter where she wants to like get out of it, but doesn't know how to. And so just they're hooking up at the story's climax. I, okay. <laughs> I asked for that one. Wow, Ryder. As yeah. a, I, I found that juvenile. <laughs> um, so at the story's resolution, like right at the end, he starts texting her. <laughs> get it together, go. guys. He starts texting her. <laughs> hurt and then like very manipulative and then the very last line of the story is just whore um and i really you know it's both shocking and again so mundane um and i really connected with this story it felt accurate and we see our narrator navigating all these complicated little moments mm-hmm. like you know the the guy being so manipulative saying things like why are you what are you yeah. sulking about and calling her honey so you we know really i want to I wanna, like... uh, I wanna point out though it isn't first person it is actually third person and i i, I just want to point that out because I, I was reading some articles about it and one of them made a point to to point that out because it sort of got taken in the, the culture as a like first person memoir-ish kind of story and in fact a lot of the men who responded yeah, negatively to the story uh, there was a twitter account that was created called men react to cat person where they were just retweeting male reactions to cat person and almost all of them referred to it oh as an God. article oh that's so which weird which was so fascinating but it, it immediately removed the agency from the writer right it immediately said this because because this story is written yeah. from uh, you know from a female's point of view primarily even though it's not first person but it focuses on her mental state more than his uh, there there was an assumption that it had to be a sort of first person essay and that it wasn't a real uh, crafted work of intentional art you know like that it's it, but it's amazing how how That's easy bizarre. it was for these men to dismiss it on those grounds by just calling it an article Um I think it's a I think it's a brilliant short story. I think it's incredibly well written. It's super economical. It makes me very uncomfortable, and yeah, you know I, it remind <laughs> it reminded me so much yeah. of you know there's like this whole tradition, and we've talked a little bit about this. Actually, we've emailed a few times about doing an, an episode about um, like sort of academic fiction, which is like this tradition of like. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, it, within with within satire of like satirizing um, colleges and and like that tradition is so male dominated and it invariably involves a professor sleeping with some young student and oh, yeah. this story is like finally hearing the other side of that experience in the best possible way and it's so disturbing um, so there was a lot of the negative reaction was I think men recognizing themselves and being very uncomfortable with that. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's the fictional equivalent of the Aziz and Sari encounter. Um, yeah, and this this happened. This story came out 
before the Aziz Ansari thing, didn't it? I guess so, or right around the same yeah. time. I mean, it obviously was written before, because it, right. if it was published in December, you know. Yeah, yeah, but okay, let's let's get into this, though. Like, the Aziz Ansari story is, first of all, much more universal and, like, so different than the Harvey Weinstein stuff. With Harvey, we can all get on board really quickly with condemning him because it's so far from our experience. Like It's easy to recognize for anybody that it's bad to jump naked at people in hotel rooms, you know, and assault them. Right, easy. Right. But these experiences where you go on a date and you know something isn't right and the power dynamic is so off uh, that it's like, something a huge part of our society has experienced and discussing what's wrong with that is facing ourselves and the experiences we ourselves might have been in and in some cases realizing like you said Ryder that you were oppressive or violent or on the other end the also very Mm -hmm. uncomfortable question of whether or not you were a victim of sexual violence you know what I mean um and Anyway, so let's let's get back to the story. We have this guy who's always putting her down, making her feel small before we get to our sexual encounter. He says things like, oh, you live in a dorm room, just like these little cutting things. But meanwhile, we also kind of get the sense that he's this super sad <laughs> As boy. As opposed to fuck boy, you know? which is a he's, different thing. Oh, yeah. Sad boy. B-O-I. <laughs> um and he's like kind of an older loser, and he but he completely thinks of himself like you know we've come to get used to this idea of the incel like involuntarily celibate. It, it rings with those overtones like no girls want me. I deserve to hook up, and mm-hmm. all the while he's going to simultaneously like think of himself as this underdog while manipulating this college student into having sex with him. Like really, it's a classic story. <laughs> These And these are the narratives that it's really important for us to face and change. People have to realize that this is right. just as toxic and much more right. common than jumping out of the bushes. Todd, what did your students say about it? What were they into? Were they interested? Were they Whose side were they on? Like, well, tell us everything. So there's, there were two things. The first is that, um, well, before I get to my students, is that I think there's a, a fascinating thing here, in addition to obviously all the stuff about dating, which is the the sort of false sense of knowing someone through text message and how that has altered perception of reality, um, which she talks about a lot here, um, where you know, you, you're you trying to say funny things or you're trying to say vaguely flirty things or smart things all through your thumb um, and how that has changed the way people communicate. It used to be someone would pick up the phone, which we'll talk about in when we get to stitches in just a minute. Um, <laughs> but here, you know, there's there's a format to texting that lends itself to this idea that everything you're saying has a double entendre, which is why we now have emojis to indicate, I'm not trying to fuck you. I am trying to say something funny or strange or whatever it might be. Um, that That people have, have quickly realized that everything that they say can have a second meaning and, and that texting is a poor form for that. Um, so I thought she did that extraordinarily well um, and, and conveyed that sense of waiting for those dots to turn into a word on your on your phone really having meaning. Now, I'm, I've been married for 20 years, so I've never dated in the time of texting. Um, and so I'm also sort of fascinated with all of this in an anthropological sense, like, man... If I were 19 years old, what would my life awful. be like? It would be awful. Um, yeah. <laughs> it would be awful. I'm yeah. so glad I'm not dating. <laughs> so, as it relates to my students, the class that I had read it, um, every single person in that class, is actually, now that I think about it, is uh, over 40. Um, and I think all of them are married. Um, and all of them uh, really liked the story itself. Um, th- there are some folks that are... In, in class that are straight, some folks in class that were gay. Um, so there's a little bit of everything going on in the classroom. The strange thing was the level of empathy for, and this is from both female and male students, for the man, saying, what is hmm. wrong with this guy? What, what happened to him that he is like this? I can't imagine ever signing off with you whore. Um, <laughs> and I think that is a um, a generational thing because obviously, like I see 
my younger friends or people that are dating that are on, you know, Match.com or JDate or whatever, or Tinder or what have you, putting up, you know, the screenshots of the text messages of people who want to go out on dates with them, they say no, and invariably it turns to, well, fuck you, you fucking Ugh. whore. Um, and that's just, it's, it is as normal, it's universal. And yeah, so these so folks normal. aren't in that world, they don't see that sort of thing, and that it's shocking to see it in a short story because it's real. It's true. You see it all the time. But right. if you've never seen it, if, if you can't even comprehend it, that someone would talk to someone like that, then it, it seems like it's out of this world. And that was the thing that well, but really see, that's blew what, me away, was their response to that. Yeah, but that's what's so great about the story is that it's it's such a slow build to mm-hmm. that, right? I mean, that's it's that's where he reveals... His, yeah. his character. He, he reveals who he, who Robert, mm-hmm. right? That's his name. That's so. That's when. That's when we've really kind of learned who Robert is. Until then, he's sort of able to parlay this like mysterious man, older guy thing into game, mm-hmm. you know. And and it, there's not there's no game there. He's not. He, you know, the, the, he reveals himself in that final moment as just basically using that to get what he wants, which was sex and hopefully more sex later. You know, he didn't actually care about her. He, he's so demeaning. Like I love the way that he talks about her, like dorm. You know, oh right, because you live in the mm-hmm. dorms. I mean, the way the story like manages that social awkwardness and 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 you can feel his judgment, her willing, her her desire to sort of fit his worldview in order to make the date okay Mm -hmm. or the dates or their encounters better or okay. It's just, it's so depressing to think that, you know, people suffer under these kind of dynamics on a regular basis. I mean, all the time. Um, And I think that, you know, something uh, like what's so great about these stories getting as much attention is that it's, I mean, it'll make for a lot of uncomfortable conversations, but like, I certainly feel like I've had more productive conversations with even my wife and women in my life based on the Aziz and Sari, uh, essay than I did with any of the Harvey Weinstein stuff. Mm -hmm. Like I felt like they were harder to have, they were more uncomfortable. Um, but they were better, you know, they were more productive. And I feel like we actually got, whereas like all sitting around going like, Oh my God, Harvey's a monster. It's like, yeah, no shit. You know, that's the easy thing to do. Um, so I, I really appreciate this story. I, I, I loved it. Um, and like I said, I feel like it's, it's a long time coming for in the, in the world of literature. Uh, it's a long time. I think so. I can't wait for more novels like this, um, to, to sort of reverse that, that tradition of like the, you know, older white guy professor screwing one of his students and writing about it and justifying how great that affair is in his life, which, which runs through so many books, good books and bad books, you know, but it's that, that like, old horny white guy tradition in American, especially the, the later half of the but 20th century. But it's not just a tradition yeah, in literature. <laughs> you know? No, no. Well, it's, it's in the world. <laughs> but, you know, look, this is... <laughs> yeah, I but mean... This is, this is, what, look, but this is a podcast about literature. Yeah. So I'm trying, to, I'm trying to focus in on why this story has great literary merit beyond the, you know, and I think that part of it is that it really does puncture that tradition and, and deflate it in the best possible way. And I, I hope that we we get more of that. Like I said, I want more novels and, and sat, satire from this perspective or from a similar perspective. Let me read Well, like let me read this little part that I think encapsulates sort of the larger issues here. And it, it actually has to do with that dorm room moment and his age. Um, so they've had sex and um, they've had bad sex, I should note. Um, and he says, I'm 34, he said. Is that a problem? She could sense him in the dark beside her, vibrating with fear. No, she said. It's fine. Good, he said. It was something I wanted to bring up with you, but I didn't know how you'd take it. He rolled over and kissed her forehead, and she felt like a slug he'd poured salt on, disintegrating under that kiss. She looked at the clock. It was nearly three in the morning. I should go home, probably, she said. Really, he said. I thought you'd stay over. I make great scrambled eggs. Thanks, she said, sliding into her leggings, but I can't. My My roommate would be worried, so... Gotta get back to that dorm room, he said, voice dripping with sarcasm. Yep, she said, since that's where I live. The drive was endless. The snow had turned to rain. They didn't talk. Eventually, Robert switched the radio to late-night NPR. Margot recalled how, when they first got on the highway to go to the movie, she'd imagined that Robert might murder her, and she thought, maybe he'll murder me now. So, there's all these things going on, but what the writer does so... um, so smartly in that scene 
is she has Robert turn on late night NPR. Because <laughs> all of a sudden, you know subtextually, oh, Robert's the kind of guy who on a drive, he doesn't put in Led Zeppelin 4. He puts on late night NPR. He's got Terry Gross interviewing, you know, bright eyes <laughs> coming, coming through the radio. Um, and it, I think it encapsulates this cultural moment in that nobody is safe from the scumbag. Just because someone listens to NPR doesn't mean they might not later text you and call you a whore. Right. Yeah, but you know what else is like so amazing about that scene isn't just the radio. It's this little exchange. Uh, it occurred to her that he could take her someplace and rape and murder her. She hardly knew anything about him after all. Just as she thought this, he said, don't worry, I'm not going to murder you. Mm -hmm. And she wondered if the discomfort in the car was her fault because she was acting jumpy and nervous like the kind of girl who thought she was going to get murdered every time she went on a date. This passage is a feeling that every woman has. Yeah, see, that's like... Yeah, that's mind-boggling. I mean, I, I always have that moment with my wife where I'm like, oh, you can just walk. And she's like, I'm not yeah. walking by myself. And it's like, oh, right, I can't. But it just doesn't even occur Yeah, to me. It's, it's ridiculous. It's just so occur. mundane, and it's something that we all think about mm-hmm. every day. I mean, mm-hmm. I think about it every day. Um, and, like, all mm-hmm. the little things that he does, like kissing her forehead is so gross. And, like, you know, this little inside red vines joke it all has this like air of creepiness to it and the way that he's just you know like referring to murdering her like jokey jokey is oh i mean the whole thing just made my skin crawl while at the same time being super familiar at the same time you know what i mean it's just that's what's great about this story is it's it's shining a light on something so real that you have to look away. So Todd, let's switch over to stitches. I, I'm ready. I'm ready for the next challenge. Well, let's um, let's shift over to stitches for a second because I think it, it's a, a good time to sort of examine then, like this entire idea of it being a general generational thing, right? Um, and you, I mean, you said it at the top of the show, uh, Julia, that. The problem isn't that it's shocking. It's the problem is that it's normal, <laughs> you know, and that this story has been written before um, or in some way. So Stitches uh, by Antonia Nelson. Um, if you're not familiar with Antonia Nelson, really just one of the very best short story writers that has ever existed. She doesn't publish as much now as she used to, um, but for a while there, she was uh, she was particularly um, uh, active as a short story writer. She also is a novelist. Um, but Stitches, the first time I read it, I think, was actually in um, an anthology. Um, but I, I've taught it over the years, and uh, it, it has always stuck with me. And whenever I give it to a student to read, they're always shocked by it, because there's a turn in the story where you're just like, oh, shit, what an amazing shift. So um, let me just read the um, the opening paragraph. Um Mama, she said, the word cut through every lair, the dark house, the late hour, the deep sleep, the gin still polluting her blood, the dream still spinning whimsically, all of it sliced away as if with a scalpel by her daughter's voice on the telephone. Baby. Ellen emerged from the murk, naked, conscious, attuned. Baby. I'm okay, Mama, but something happened. Something happened here. Here was in her college town, two hours away from her parents' home. This her first semester. Ellen felt her heart beating. But you're okay? I'm okay. Not hurt? Um, I'm okay. I'm scared. And then it goes on, and she says, Mama, I was raped. Mm. And that's when the story starts. She's calling to inform her mother that she's been raped. And then it sort of collapses. Um, <laughs> it's a very strange and uncomfortable and awkward story. It turns out... She's kind of been raped. She's mostly been raped. Um, <laughs> she walks it back. Yeah, she walks it back. The whole, the rest of the story is so the, the the father immediately gets dressed and starts driving. So there's this sort of like you know 
oh, he's going to go fix this? Or, he's going to go you kill know, a guy. Figure out what's going right. on. Right, you got to kill the guy, whatever. So he jumps in the car, and the rest of the story is just the phone conversation between mother and daughter. And, man, this is this is just one of the best short stories I've ever read. I, I could mm-hmm. not believe. I, I hadn't read it before. Um, because the layers are so perfect. Like, the way that the you sort of peel back from from where you start, which is, you know, you start with this immediately sort of shocking, scary situation. And then it just becomes this, you, you, you know, everything about the mom, you know, everything about the brother who's still asleep. You, you just get such a sense of this family and this daughter and the stories and the, and you realize by the end of the story, it's almost like, Oh, this isn't going to even be remembered by the family like a year from now. Like that's the tragedy right. of the story is that it almost just becomes a blip in their life. It goes from a tragedy, a rape that needs to be dealt with to, oh no, this is just part of the family's history. And that's the real tragedy. It's yeah. amazing. Such a good story. Yeah, there, there's um, there's this point. The daughter um, says, I, I knew him. I know him. He invited me to his house and I went there and I knew we were going to have sex. Um, and then the mother says, there can still be rape. And the daughter says, I don't think it was rape. I agreed. I wanted it. I mean, I wanted some of it. He's my professor. And then it goes on for a little bit. And then she says, he's my movement teacher. Um, and then it goes on a little bit more. And the, the mother says, well, how old is this professor? And then the, the, the daughter says, well, he's not actually a professor per se. Right. He's more like the TA. And, and, yeah. <laughs> and meanwhile, the mom keeps imagining the house that they that she was raped in and it keeps changing. It's like a book lined, beautiful, like professorial house. And then it becomes like a guest house in the back of someone else's. And it, it, she keeps downgrading mm-hmm. the, the sort of vision of what happened to her daughter. It's so well written. Oh my God. <laughs> and then it's, well, how old is the TA? I yeah. Don't know, it's so good. 25. And it's just this, it, it begins to descend for a moment into farce. And that's how Antonia Nelson gets you. Because you start laughing a little bit about, oh my God, what what is going on here? And then she brings it back. Um, because you start to realize things about the about the mother as well. Um, mm. that, it, it's an incredibly well-written story, but it also asks all these huge existential questions about, about the body and about trauma and about the messages we tell ourselves, all these things. Um, so... Julia, what were your thoughts on The Lovely Stitches? Oh, man. Wow. Well, uh, this story is just really fascinating. And uh, so many of the details you mentioned, I also just loved. Um, Like Ryder, I really loved little details that were just blithely dropped in. Like one that jumped out to me was the mom's on the phone. She's looking at the cat and she says, the cat who's the same age as Tracy. So like really giving a Mm -hmm. age to this daughter. Um, And you feel a whole history of details about this family. You know, it's really about a family and a community's response to an assault report, to put it really clinically. It's about how we define rape and assault and all the different ways that people respond to it. Like we have the mom, obviously, whose perspective we're seeing and all of her doubts and definitions. We have the dad who's like black and white, white knight. And then we have the brother who's sleeping through this entire thing. They're, you know, uh, responding to this crisis and he's (laughs) asleep, you know, not a care in the world. (laughs) Um, and the son actually, just to go here for a second, he's a really interesting addition to this story. Like we never see him, we never interact with him, but we hear, um, a- yep. Her son could, could someday make a mistake yeah, and put his penis exactly. someplace wrong and end up crying. Oh, yeah. Such a good sentence. <laughs> It's amazing. We'll, we'll discuss that that's, more, that's what, more directly in A Real Doll. Like, in A Real Doll. I know. I couldn't believe how great these yeah, stories were exactly. together with that And line. then in terms of other characters, we have our professor, who's actually this movement class TA in question. And this figure is so similar to our cat person guy. I mean, I love the near climax of the story where Tracy says to her mom, the saddest thing possible is a man crying. And like everyone in this story is simultaneously resisting mm-hmm. and reinforcing these ideas of gender standards and masculinity. The worst thing in this story isn't non-consensual sex. It's a man crying. Like, how crazy is that? And yet it feels so real and so like a thing this girl would say. You know what I mean? Yep. Well, and there's, like, there's the moment... I mean, this is the centerpiece of the story, too, where part of the reason the boy is crying is he accidentally 
had anal sex with her. Um, <sighs> supposedly. Uh, sure. Accidentally. Sure. Let's, let's put yeah. those in scare quotes. Um, yeah. Ellen listened to her daughter cry with a kind of pride. Um, she would let her cry for hours if need be. Hundreds of dollars worth of tears. He didn't mean to put his penis there, Tracy exclaimed. It slipped, I think. He was confused, she sobbed. Oh, the confused penis, the slippage, <laughs> the proximity of those two apertures, the slick bodies in the dark, the heated excitement of love or its possible beginning. They were at sea in a leaky waterbed. It was a storm, an emergency. He'd made a mistake <laughs> or not. I mean, it's yep. everything that you th- are thinking sort of slides, well, to, you know, use the word I just used, <laughs> slides around. Uh. Um, but... Then, you know, the mother can't stop worrying about the child for, for good reason, um, because then the daughter says, it hurt, mama, it hurts so bad. And then all of a sudden, you're right back into the protective quality of the story. Um, and then she thinks the word sphincter. So I think the, the real crowning achievement of this story is right near the end when the daughter references the fact that mm. the, her parents met in college. And that her mm-hmm. dad was yeah. TA. That brings it full circle because then you're like, oh shit, this cycle, this is a, this has always been happening. You know, maybe maybe uh, the mom didn't get anally raped the first night she met her dad, but it was probably in a situation similar. Mm-hmm. And that you know the way that these these tragedies become yeah. just dating, and the way that rape just becomes. A bad sex or a bad night, and the way that we contextualize these these events in our lives, as you know, as parents, as daughters, as brothers. I mean, the story gets right to the to those issues um, in, in in a funny way, in a emotional way, in a very uncomfortable mm-hmm. way. There's like the way the mom feels about her son is kind of sickening and like weird. And it's just, it's all so it's just, and, and, and on a sentence by sentence level, it's an amazingly well-written story. I mean, it's so descriptive and she, she's really loves the use of um, like paradox within a paragraph. Like people are like super friendly, but then they have like an edge to them. She, she really loves to sort of describe people and behaviors um, in, in opposing ways. So like, you know, the, the dad, is like somewhat dangerous, mm-hmm. even though he's like the the good force in the story and trying to be this white knight, but he's described in, in terms that are also kind of aggressive yeah, and, totally. and physically not great. And there's just, you know, she describes the way she, her daughter's body looks and she describes it as like a, like sort of stocky and, and peasant like, and not like her body. It's just so well-written. I can't, I want to read it again, just talking about yeah, it. Yeah, and to go so back to, to what you're saying for a second, you know, the cycle of abuse, to put it strongly for the story, is so fascinating. I mean, man, the revelation that the mother in the story has been married to someone who mm-hmm. had power with her, it's sh- right. oh, power over her shades and colors, everything that comes before, all the advice she gives to her, the way that she's calculating and thinking about everything. And, like, as we talk about Me Too, this is something we have to understand. There's a huge cultural personal reckoning that we all, like, no matter your gender, have to go through. Like, were we a part of this? Um, And the dad's so important here, too, rushing off with no context. You know, this story is about women working through these complexities and men being the good guy, which is a dynamic we are still struggling with every Mm -hmm. single day and i think the other thing as it relates to this story compared to um uh, cat person is both of these stories are laced with sort of black humor you know a mordant yes resignation that the world is fucked up yes and some of these (laughs) things are things you have to live through um that these are scars that everybody has and like you know that that makes the story easier to read than you know, a straight trauma memoir or something might be. But it also tells you about coping mechanisms. Like, we make yeah. these stories blackly comic so that we won't throw up with grief. Mm. And, you know, the, that's part it's of the problem. problem. I mean, and that's sort of the complicity <laughs> right. of art sometimes in, in larger societal issues. I mean, this is something I think about a lot because I'm a crime novelist in that you know, how much bad shit do I put into the world about guns and killing? You know, I, I've literally built my house on the, this ability to write about bad people with guns. Um, 
And so that bothers me a little bit. Well, actually, not a little bit. It bothers me a lot a bit. Um, and it's something that I think about in relationship to these stories that, yeah, we can laugh and say, oh, man, this is a powerfully fucked up story. Um, but I think a lot of times you can't laugh at this stuff because it does um, it, it does do exactly what you just said, Julie, is it, it, it creates a lineage of abuse, essentially. Um, but I, I think fiction allows us to deal with it. I, w- I will also say at the end of Stitches, though, it draws a direct line to Cat Person. Um, Ellen returned to her bedroom. She had switched off the lights and muted Jack Hanna, and now settled her sore head on her pillow, daughter beside her. The cat jumped under her feet and walked up her blanketed thighs. <laughs> now it will be weird in class, Tracy said forlornly. It's not fair. She sounded weary, depleted, capable of falling into an exhausted sleep. No, it's not fair. This is what college would teach Tracy. It was, after all, the only lesson, and some people never learned it. Mm. Ah! Great great ending. ending. Great ending for a short story. And the cat. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, Jack Hanna is the NPR of this story. It's the connective tissue. It's like you can't be all bad (laughs) to watch Jack Hanna. Yeah. Let's move on to A Real Doll uh, by A.M. Holmes, which is a... I find this one... This this story was the hardest it's to read. It's super disturbing. It actually made me so physically uncomfortable. Like, I just couldn't... I, I had to keep putting it down. I was eating while I was reading. I was eating breakfast yesterday, and I was like, I, I don't know if I could eat and read this story. It's so it's disgusting. It's a disgusting oh my God, story. I'm so, so, so... I'm excited about this Are one. you? Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Boys, Barbies, <laughs> Ken, let's do it. <laughs> oh, God. All right, so A Real Doll is uh, told from... Uh, this one is told uh, in first person from a boy. I guess he's, he's got to be, what, 13, yeah. 14? Old enough to, to be oh, uh, oh, masturbating. Younger, um, younger. And he's, uh, <laughs> he starts... He starts talking to his sister's Barbie. So this story has like a sort of magical realist, or at least within his mind, uh, so- somewhat magical uh, reality, where his bar- the Barbie doll talks to him, and he starts... Um, molesting the barbie doll and uh yeah and then talking to the barbie doll it's so it it kind of alternates between a world where barbie is a a real person and can talk to him and ken is her somewhat boyfriend uh and uh, a world where he's just jerking off on a doll (laughs) and it's not right to laugh and imagining all of this it's so disturbing i can't yeah, it's a, it's uh, but really you know, I, I also story. think that it takes a very uh, probably what a situation that probably has happened in houses all over <laughs> America, uh, and you know where people. I mean, I I never really had I didn't have dolls, but like I imagine people. You know, I know I knew other boys who would like cut the doll, cut the heads off their dolls, yeah. and, and stuff like that. And there's there's a lot of that in this story uh, from the the sisters sort of taking apart the Barbie doll, but it just ends up being so disturbing because Barbie is talking throughout the story. <laughs> God, uh, I don't know. What do you guys want to, what do you have to say about this? Okay, well, I, I'll go, I'll go. I love this story so much, no matter how much mm-hmm. it disturbs you to think about a boy rubbing up on a Barbie rider. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, it's just so deeply real. You just feel both the amazing magical realism of Barbie talking back to this boy, but at the same time, we're hearing about how this kid is actually touching and violating a small plastic Mm. doll. Like, the amazing thing about this story is how it takes place in his imagination, but also in reality at the same time. I've kind of never read anything like it. Like He sneaks into his sister's stuff and takes Barbie on what he calls dates and imagines all the things she'll say to him, like playing out this sick familiar construction of like how Mm -hmm. a lot of heterosexual relationships work but really what i love about this piece is it's straight up hilarious like i love this passage a leaf larger than barbie fell from the maple tree above us and caught just before it would have hit her i caught it before it would have hit her i half expected her to squeak you saved my life i'm yours forever instead she said in a perfectly normal voice wow big leaf (laughs) (laughs) love that Um, but it's so indicative of how boys imagine relationships (laughs) he says like very disturbing lines like Barbie laughed and I almost slapped her and I was falling in love in a way that had nothing to do with love all while we're understanding that he's a real boy in a real place making like 
drugging this Barbie around and dragging her around and pretending to take her on dates, making her drinks, flirting with her, like taking her out in this super creepy way. I mean, it is so gross. He's he's drugging her. He's giving her Valium. It's like, right, little crunched up Valiums. And it's like such a, again, it's a perfect parallel for like the guy getting Mm -hmm. a girl drunk. Like, Giving her more and more drinks so he can get his, have his way with her, which in the first encounter, having his way with Barbie means putting her head in his uh, mouth. Oh, yeah. Which, but know, I used so, to do that yeah, with so my dolls. Like, I'd bite their on, heads off and like, really? Yeah, like, see, that's the thing. I feel like this story keeps operating on this way of like, you know, on one level, it's it's a, you know, like you're saying, a script for how men and women are and later in life. when they're, And then other times it's just a, a little boy like screwing around with a doll. And like, it's, it's, it's so perfect the way it keeps oscillating between those two realities and neither one stabilizes. So it makes, it it made me so uncomfortable. Yeah. And you, oh yeah. So there's this, I love the head and the mouse scene because he like thinks about it. He considers (laughs) it, you know, he knows what he's doing is wrong and weird. Um, And since it's from our point of view or his point of view, rather, then we get to, Mm-hmm. see yep. him decide to do it. Yeah, let me read that paragraph because it's actually worded very carefully. On the way back to Jennifer's room, I did something Barbie almost didn't forgive me for. I did something which not only shattered the moment, but nearly wrecked the possibility of our having a future together. And then he puts it in his mouth. Yeah. Oh, I'm, and then she does for you. Oh, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. In the hallway between the stairs and Jennifer's room, I popped Barbie's head into my mouth like Lion and Tamer, God and Godzilla. I popped her whole head into my mouth and Barbie's hair separated into single strands like Christmas tinsel and (sighs) caught in my throat, nearly choking me. I could taste layer on layer of makeup, Revlon, Max Factor, and Maybelline. I closed my mouth around Barbie and could feel her breath in mine. I could hear her screams in my throat, her teeth, white pearl drops, Pepsodent, and the whole Osmond family bit my tongue. It's just so gross. <laughs> He's experimenting with violating Barbie in a capricious right. way. Exactly. Yeah. This, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. This is a boy acting out all the things we come he's come to believe about dating women and then things take a really serious turn <laughs> like right. weird when we get to Ken when we get Ken involved we get some classic like ribbing on Ken for his non genitalia but that doesn't really like stop our narrator yes. from getting Ken involved. <laughs> Yep, in his experimentation. Oh my God, the things that uh, happen. So there's a I moment late in the story I... where uh, the narrator's sister switches the heads of Barbie and Ken, um, which if you were ever a oh, child, yes. like that was one of those things you would do. Is like you pluck one head and put it on a different head's body. And he says, uh, Wednesday, Ken and Barbie had their heads switched. I went to get Barbie, and there on top of the dresser were Barbie and Ken, sort of. Barbie's head was on Ken's body. And Ken's head was on Barbie. At first, I thought it was just me. Hi, Barbie's head said. I couldn't respond. She was on Ken's body, and I was looking at Ken in a whole new way. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. It's super. So well written. The the thing that that A.M. Holmes does here, obviously, is she is playing with these huge tropes of sexuality, obviously. And the role of the Barbie doll in American culture, which if you haven't seen, there's a wonderful show on Netflix that does deep dives into strange parts of American culture. And there's one all about uh, the Barbie doll. Um, It's it's worth watching. Um, But also about the, the nature of play. There's all that as well. And but then just more awkwardly is this this shifting sense of. You know, what we find sexually attractive and, and what that means to that individual person. And this story was written in the 90s. So a lot of things that perhaps weren't as acceptable then as they are today are being talked about in a really bizarre and interesting way that makes it uncomfortable and odd to read. But also sort of exhilarating that A.M. Holmes was taking these big chances and putting them in a story where a guy fucks a Barbie doll. Which I love. Yeah. Well, I mean, this... It's our cultural moment, right? Like, this is what we want right now. Or this is what I want right now. We want to examine and interrogate the ways that we interact sexually and in the dating world. And <laughs> all the hidden context. Uh-oh. We lost Ryder. Okay. He'll be back in a oh, second. <laughs> but, 
okay, he's back. And anyway, it's it's not just the men, you know. There's a whole other side story here about this, the way women interact with each other. Um, although, of course, this boy violating this Barbie mm-hmm. is the main point. But anyway, the narrator's sister's also using Barbie in ways well, that are really bizarre. Well, the sister cuts off Barbie's real. at some point. Yeah. So, yeah. Towards the end. And, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, there's something in there about how women treat each other, too. Uh, and, oh, man, I remember this. Like, I, re- I remember playing with dolls, and, you know, you start mm-hmm. with a feminist cutting off the hair and realize you can never go back. Um, and, but then, you know, you can really experiment yeah. with what... Yeah. yeah. This story made me never want to give my son dolls. <laughs> <laughs> or or any, anything that is, like, purports to be realistic in any way. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like, I don't mind, like... Like he he loves stuffed animals right now, and so we give him like lots of sea creatures and stuff. And like, but I was after reading the story, I'm like, why would I ever give him something that's like in the shape of a human being, <laughs> like actually like anatomically correct at all? Because it just seems like inviting experimentation that's just goes dark. That, very that, it's real close to Dahmer area, <laughs> right? <laughs> so okay, so we've looked at these three stories, and they all have this this continuum of what it means to be sexually attracted to someone else um but to also be sexually violated um what rape is what it means to be a woman who fears the opposite sex all these things that are happening in over three stories that contain a lot of similar things they are mordantly funny um they are uncomfortable they operate on a level of um intellectual questioning that deserves a second a third and a fourth read mm-hmm. um but like you said julia the, they shouldn't be shocking because these things that people are talking about in these stories and all three of them are w- written by women um like nothing has changed from barbie to cat right. person well but i think so that, how, i think that oh, another thing change? that all three of these stories are have a sort of uh, implicitly hovering around them through the, you know, they're, they're suffused throughout the entire stories. It's the idea that the male perspective is the dominant one and the one that has the power. Mm-hmm. And, and all of these stories puncture that in some way or dismantle that or ridicule that, that, that power. And that, and I think that, yes, they, these kinds of stories have been experienced and written about, but literarily, literature, um, we're finally at a time, hopefully, where it's not going to be taken for the male perspective is not mm. going to be yeah. the basic, the the given, the standard yeah. in literature. And um, I mean, I'm I, I that's what I think the popularity of Cat Person speaks to is that we're finally we're finally going getting to a place, hopefully, where you know fifty percent of books being written are written by women, and so there's a whole lot of stories and perspectives that are hopefully going to enter that conversation and change, you know, so it's not just the given that, um, you know, the, the teacher can, or the, the older guy can just have sex, call it bad sex and walk away or, you know, basically rape a woman and walk away and it'll just be weird in class. Like, or you can molest a Barbie and it's just Mm -hmm. a normal kid thing for a boy to do. Like, you know, hopefully we're getting to a place where, you know, those, the the other perspective will be heard and written. So, from well this is what we talk about when we're talking about rape culture right that's what people mean when they say it we need to be addressing these topics head on and what's great is art and literature especially fiction can do that we can take stories like these and talk about them in a way that might not be able to we might not be able to do with our own experiences you know Mm -hmm. and this is where art can hold a really social purpose let's talk about what boys do to barbie or what women actually are thinking about when you're driving them home. And anyone in a position of power or privilege needs to get into a listening mode. And men are first in line. Like, they just need to give space to these stories. Well, but they also get very defensive. Yeah. Well, they, they have to be. I mean... Yeah. I would, but they end up... Unfortunately, so many men come at... Like, obviously, the reaction to cat person. Men come at this kind of story or, the, or this perspective... In, defensively you know that they sort of but that's just my you know this is just the way guys are or this is the way my body is or this is just what i and it's like take a you know and and i think that that's that's why 
uh, the more like the Aziz and Sari, like I was saying earlier, I think that essay ended up being more of a discussion that was more productive because it's, it's, it's harder to, it's harder for, you know, frankly, for me to wrap my head around that situation because there is a part of me like that reads cat person and goes like, ugh. Have I been in that position? Have, you know, I've never slept with someone that much younger than me, but like certainly I have bad, bad dates and like bad situations. I don't, you know, I would hate to think that somebody was like, I don't want to have sex with this person and went through with it anyway, but like it's entirely conceivable and it's awful to think about, you know? And it's like, I have to sort of recalibrate my thinking and it's, it's you know, and so that's, a, that's like a great conversation starter in a way that, you know, just yeah, be- discussing rape culture abstractly isn't. Be, I, I agree with you because I think like when you see something like Harvey Weinstein, like uh, I, it's hard for my mind to make that leap because I'm like, that's a guy yeah. who, if he wasn't in his job, would be hiding behind corners and raping women on the street. Um, but like I, I know Aziz Ansari, you know, I know that date. I don't know him personally. Right. You know what I'm saying? I'm speaking metaphorically. Right. Um, and that's why I think these stories are valuable, too, is that it, I think it forces smart or uh, empathetic or intellectual or emotional human beings to question their own actions. It would it would thrill me if young men would read these three stories. But the fact of the matter is, young men are not going to read these three stories unless they're listening to Literary Disco. Um, and so I think part of this comes from you know, as a as a professor, I, I'm, I always think about things as like, how can I teach something beyond the, the book itself? Um, and I think, you know, young people have to read things that challenge their ideas of what sexuality is, because otherwise they get this notion that sex is what they see in porn. There was a great piece in the New Yorker, or not New Yorker, the New York Times Sunday Magazine I don't know, a couple months ago about what porn is teaching 15 and 16 year old boys. Um, and it's horrifying, you know, it's absolutely, it's horrifying. And I think reading Cat Person or reading Stitches or reading um, A Real Doll by uh, by Am Holmes, if you're 15 or 16 years old, I think that has the opportunity to cause a fundamental shift in the way a young man thinks. At least I hope so. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, Todd, Thank you. I just like on behalf of women, thank you for teaching these stories and knowing about them and spreading the word. And, you know, I think a key component here that will be a part of this revolution is men educating each other and having these conversations behind closed doors amongst themselves, because it's so sensitive when, you know, you're reactive to a woman saying like, hey, I felt really uncomfortable with that. But um, talking with your brothers, your friends, your whatever, whoever, whatever men are around you is just going to be a vital piece of this equation, you know. And it is really sad that men haven't read more stories like this or that these perspectives are so surprising because for me, they feel completely universal. They feel like, oh, yeah, this is a story that's like all three of them, even the fantastical Mm -hmm. ones. It's like, yep, this is very, very accurate (laughs) everyday experience. And part of the reason that's we've come to this point is that, you know, young men mostly read stories about cool young men. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Like they have to read about women and think about women. Right. You know? It turns out if you turn your baseball cap. Right. And women become so much more interesting, right? Because they're real human beings and you can talk to them and they have things to say. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. If you you go through your life just thinking women are like bodies for you to stick your penis in, you're never going to have satisfying conversations. Like you're missing out on so much. Like what are these? I mean, oh, it's centuries, centuries, (laughs) thousands of years of human history. Yeah. And you know what, Ryder? I'm so happy you said that because. The thing is, is like when we have these patriarchal ideas or we think of women as stereotypes, like it hurts everyone. You know, you're the one losing out on all these like cool female figures in your life. It's like someone I date, someone I don't date, my mom, not my mom. Are those the only two categories? No, like life is so much richer and more exciting uh, if you can let women and complex women into your life and 
talk to them, mm-hmm. hang out with them, and have all different levels of relationships with women. So important. Well, and that see, this is the thing though. Like, <laughs> this is my my soapbox for men is like allow yourself to have human feelings and to express them. You know, young <laughs> yes, men yes, are always yes. horrible with being able to express emotion to each other and have an empathetic response from their friend, other than "fuck it, dude." Um, and so young men being able to talk to each other about emotional things, um, that's the, like, be emotionally available to your friends, young people. Yeah. And, oh man, there's so, there's so much that we can do after you guys just get that shit done. (laughs) Just talk to each other and help each other be better people because women need it but also you guys need it yourselves too we don't need you guys rubbing up on a single more barbie leave barbie alone forever please (laughs) (laughs) 